0: When we sing a hymn like that, in our minds, if we picture ourselves in his presence, then the words like, we shall behold him, we shall behold him face to face, our Savior and our Lord. And one day, we're going to do that by his grace. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, at your invitation, we come into your presence now in prayer, knowing that your Holy Spirit reaches down inside of us and brings forth the very things you want us to have on both our heart and mind as we pray. And I trust, Lord, you do that for us individually, and you do that for us in a corporate sense. Draw us close to you, Lord, as we come to pray. Father, we're so easily distracted by the things of this world, by our own desires and our own passions, by the things that we think are troubling and challenging. And all the while, dear God, you're working your purpose out in our life and in this world. Help us not to forget, Lord, you've not lost control of anything. This is your creation And we are your creation. And you're very much in control of what goes on. I thank you, dear God, that you're a God from eternity to eternity. A God who's a God of love and mercy and grace and great compassion. And yet at the same time, a balance with justice and high expectations for us who come to know you. I thank you that you're a forgiving God. And I thank you, dear God, that you not only forgive, but you forget. And I thank you for the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, who day by day would draw us closer to you. Father, what you have done and what you promised to do for us is all an act of grace. And one day, dear God, by your grace, we are going to stand face to face and sing praise to you as our Lord and our Savior. And dear God, we thank you for that. Forgive us, Father. I doubt that there's a one of us in this room who doesn't forget to give thanks and to live our lives as ones who have been blessed. I ask you to forgive us, Lord, when we face challenges. Things that are beyond our control and we get depressed or anxious about them. Help us to know, dear God, they're not beyond your control and that you're mightily at work. I thank you that through the shed blood of Jesus, atonement for those sins and all other sins has been made and that the guilt has been lifted from us and it was placed on Jesus and he died for us that we might live. But he also was raised from the dead, Lord, which is a reminder to us that you're going to raise us, that we're going to spend eternity with you. (coughs) Father, I ask you to help us be appreciative of all the good things going on around us, of the people that you put around us, of the environment you allow us to live in, of the many blessings that we have experienced. Help us to look back over our lives, Lord, and count those blessings, for they have been endless, day after day after day. I pray, dear God, that we might see renewal in our land. There's so many things happening in our country which are alarming and which reveal that we are a country without a foundation in you. I pray for our nation, Lord, and I pray that you would help us and other committed Christians to be a living witness in this fallen world. That you'd help us not to be part of a perverse world, but that we'd be a living example to others. I pray, dear God, for those in high office. I pray for those in influential positions. And I pray for the person who has very little, but has a voice and a witness. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would move on all of us and bring us close to you. Father, I thank you for our church and what you do in our life. I thank you for an opportunity to come together this morning for Sunday school and worship. I thank you that you are designing things to enrich us spiritually. And Father, we give you all the praise and all the glory. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke to the 19th chapter. The Gospel of Luke, the 19th chapter. If you don't have your Bible with you, please, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. If not... Turn to the person next to you with a look of expectation, and they'll share with you. I encourage you to not only open to Luke, the 19th chapter, and we're going to start with the first verse, but I encourage you to keep your Bible open in your lap and follow along as we move through the passage. I keep telling folks there's nothing fancy about what I do up here. I've done my homework, and I would like to share with you what I have learned. So we're going to move through the passage and let God do the speaking to us. Let's pray together. Father, we are honored that you would bring us to this place. And that through the power of your Holy Spirit, generations ago, that you would have recorded for us the words that come from your heart and your mind and even from the lips of Jesus. I ask you, Lord, to let that same Holy Spirit be quickened in us. That we might hear, maybe anew, maybe for the first time, that we might hear you speak. And that it might change our lives. Please bless this very special time. In Jesus' name, Amen. As I read through the passage and started to prepare, it dawned on me as... I think it has a lot of other people. We have a God of great mercy. A God who doesn't look at us and say, oh, you're wealthy and you're not wealthy and you have these talents and you don't have many talents. And That's not how he makes decisions. He doesn't look at who we are or what we're going to do for him. It's not based on that kind of work equation. It's based on the kind intention of his own will. And if you want clarification, I know when you can ask him and get to understand that a little more fully. He's a God of mercy. If you go back in the 18th chapter and you look at the last example he gives us in that biblical narrative, he talks about Jesus walking into the city of of Jericho. And as he enters with this entourage of people and people standing along the sides of the road, there's a man who's blind. People have carried him out and placed him on the side of that road. If you've ever been in that part of the world, they grow rocks and there's dust everywhere. And that man was sitting at the feet of people going by on that dusty road. And he was calling out, begging for someone to give him money because he was very poor. He hears a change in the sound around him. He senses something's happening on the road. He can't see it, but he senses it. And as he senses that, he calls out and he says, what's going on? What's different? And somebody says to him, Jesus of Nazareth is coming by. And he knows that name. And he calls out as Jesus goes by and says, Son of David, help me. Heal me. And Jesus stops and looks at this utterly poor man, not with any of the kind of things that you and I have. And he looks at him and he says, because of your faith, because you believe that I am the Son of God and can help you, I want you to stand up. And the man regained his sight. You can tell from that previous chapter, apparently the man had sight and now he's regaining it. God's giving back to him something he had already had a foretaste of. And do you see what he does when you look at the 18th chapter? He immediately joins in with the other people and starts following Jesus. That's a natural response when he touches and heals. It's a natural response for you and me. He has healed us spiritually. We ought to be in unison walking with him every day of our life. Now, with that as an intro, what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at another case of him working in someone's life. This time, it's not a poor man. This time, it's Zacchaeus, a very wealthy man. I want you to follow along as I read from the Gospel of Luke, the 19th chapter, starting with the first verse and reading through the 10th. And folks, listen carefully for God is going to speak to you. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay in your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because he too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. When you look at the first and second verses, it's sort of an introduction. It talks about the city of Jericho. If you're in Jerusalem and you go a bit to the east and a bit to the north towards the Jordan River, out into the desert, There's a border town called Jericho. There are some archaeologists who say that after the initial Garden of Eden experience, that's where people gathered and where they lived. And if you go there today, the tour guides will take you to a place where they have dug into the ground and they show you no less than seven different layers of civilization. So it's a rather substantial town, not numerically, but because of its history. The walls came tumbling down. You remember Jericho? As the people of Israel came into the promised land? It's a place where Herod the Great decided to make an investment. He built an amphitheater. He built other public buildings. It became an oasis in the middle of that very arid land. It became a place of great commerce Because one of the few roads that go east and west in that part of the world go right through Jericho. So, for lots of reasons, Jericho is a substantial place. Also, it happens to be a very beautiful place. Jesus is approaching Jericho. There's a man that we're introduced to whose name is Zacchaeus. He is simply described as the chief tax collector. And to the ear of the Jew, that fell on disfavor. The Hebrew word that we translate, Zacchaeus, into Greek, you know what it means? The righteous one. And this man was not viewed as a righteous person. Anything but that. If you look at the organizational structure of the Roman government, when they would go into a land and take possession of the land, they would immediately set up tax districts. They would immediately start extracting income from those areas to support the Roman government and also their occupation of those areas. So they had a pretty simple method. They would let people bid on being a tax collector. And the more money you were willing to commit and the more higher percentage you were willing to give to the Roman government, the more likely you were to become a tax collector. They set up three district offices in Palestine, one of which was in Jericho. The other two over toward the Mediterranean. Those tax collectors would collect as much as they could collect. It was not a uniform taxation. The more they could take from you, the more they would take the least they could report they would report and they would pocket the difference they had a man over each district this man was the chief tax collector and he became exceedingly wealthy Proverbs 22 1 says a good name is to be desired more than riches and wealth And a lot of people forget that. There's a man that I came to know only very briefly and very generally back in the 1980s. His name is Lee Atwater. Lee, in the 1970s and 1980s, became one of the leading Republicans in this country. He was actually chairman of the National Republican Party when the first George Bush was elected to president. He also was one of the architects of the political system that got the Republicans into the South for the first time in over a hundred years. Lee Atwater was known because he introduced, and these are my words, a new political strategy. Discredit somebody just before the election so they don't have time to rebuke it or recover. And people will remember it at the polls. That's kind of the operating procedure today. And it started, it seems, history says, with Lee Atwater. He grew to unbelievable riches and unbelievable positions of authority. People liked him. He had to win some kind of personality. But he became ill with cancer. And in January, in his 40th year of life, At the top of his game, he knew he was going to die in a couple of months. And he said, in one of his statements, I had to come eye to eye with death to come to know Jesus. And you could hear the sadness in him. I want to read a quote. January 1991, two months before his death. He said, the 80s were about acquiring wealth, power, and prestige. I know I acquired more wealth, power, and prestige than most. But you can acquire all you want and still feel empty. What power wouldn't I have traded for a little more time with my family? What price wouldn't I have paid for an evening with my friends? He'd come to terms with all of these life issues that we deal with. Zacchaeus had not yet come to terms with that. He was still at the top of his game. He was still playing the game that this world wants all of us to play. By God's grace, by his mercy... Lee accepted Jesus and understood. And he got off the merry-go-round. Are you off of it yet? Are you still on it? Or do you do like a lot of us? Do you get off and get back on? Have you ever noticed if you run fast enough, you can get on and not even stumble? Verses 3 and 4. Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. Jesus has now entered the town where he encountered the blind man. He's going toward Jerusalem. He's gone through the town. And as he's coming through the town with this entourage of people, here's his chief tax collector. He becomes aware that Jesus is coming. And he has this inner urge to see Jesus. Now, that's not described as conviction. It's not described as something that is uniquely of God. But he has this urge. And because he's small of stature and he can't get up high enough to see over the people along the edge of the road, he runs down the road, this dignified, wealthy man. Runs down the side of the road. Sycamore trees are on both sides of that road in many places to this day. And he gets in a tree, and the reason the tree is important is it has low limbs, and it's easy to climb. And he gets in it, and he's there waiting to see Jesus. Now, I ask you a question. Did the Holy Spirit come on that man in preparation for him accepting Jesus and give him that urge to want to see Jesus? I have another question. If that's not the case... Did God use that occasion where his natural instincts and curiosity had taken off to let him see Jesus? Could be either. You know, it doesn't make any difference. You know why? He saw Jesus. That's the end result. It worked. And here he is in a tree, and he looks out, and he sees Jesus. Jesus. Classical theologians talk a lot about irresistible grace. You know what I love about irresistible grace? You don't even know it's coming. It's not something we generate. It's not something we have a part in. It's where God reaches out and says, Oh, I'm going to give you a tingling, and you're going to want to come this way. And I'm not going to violate your free will, but you're coming my way. And he's got that somehow worked out and balance to where we think it's our idea. And we say, oh, yes, I want to go see Jesus. And yet he had that planned for Zacchaeus and for all of us. Irresistible grace. You can say no, but you don't want to do that, folks, because now you're going to wrestle with the Holy Spirit. And you will come if a sovereign God has called you. Because he loves you and he wants to show mercy. Just like he did the poor man. He does that for us. If you look on down at the 5th through the 7th verses, Jesus sees him. Here he is, up in a tree, and Jesus, with all these people around him, all that commotion, Jesus notices one person, this guy dangling from a limb. And he looks up at him and he says wonderful words. He said, get out of the tree. Because I must go to your house. Isn't that profound? It's not like, I don't know who you are and I don't know anything about you. Let's get introduced. He said, get out of the tree and come. I'm going with you because I must go to your house. Has he been to your house? I want to tell you, I'm so honored and blessed he's been to my house. And I was more than dangling. How about you? And he came and got us and said, you're mine, gave us irresistible grace, wrapped his arms around you and said, I must be with you. Because that's how it's supposed to be. Now, if that's happened to you, you sit there and just put your hand on your heart and say, praise God, because He has loved me. He has come and gotten me. That's what it's all about. And yet, what do the people do? Some of them start grumbling. The people who are walking with Jesus, His disciples, in a general and in a very specific way, and they start grumbling. Grumbling. What are they grumbling about? They say, he's going to the house of a sinner. And what that does when they say that is it reveals their heart. And in their heart, they feel justified in saying, those people are sinners, we're not so bad. And they keep count of other people's sin. And they somehow, in their own mind, justify what they're doing. Don't you think at Fort Hood this past week that happened in part? Somebody's keeping account of what they think are evils, and they're prompted to do something horrible as a result. Look around our country, folks. We now live in a country where people are harboring all kinds of ill feeling. And they're expressing it in totally dysfunctional ways. And one of the beauties of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is we have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And He has given us a new heart. And we shouldn't keep account. We shouldn't be unreconciled. And we ought to be a living, walking witness to the people who are our neighbors, and the people in the grocery store, the people we come in contact with. And they ought to see in us not a people trying to justify our anger and resentment, but a people who are humbled by the grace of God where he forgave us while we were sinners. Do you understand? It ought to grow out of our personal experience with Jesus. And it ought to change us these people who are grumbling, I'm sure they could make a really good case for why they didn't want to embrace this chief tax collector. And they could probably count off all the things he'd done as, that were wrong. The problem with that is it doesn't excuse their sin. You can justify it till you're blue in the face. It doesn't change the reality that we who have been reconciled to him ought to have a ministry of reconciliation. I read that someplace. And that's who we're supposed to be. And folks, if that's not who you are, if you've got something in here against somebody and you can build up a really good case for having it, you better get rid of that case and come to terms with it and love that person even if they're an enemy. That's part of what this is all about. That's part of what that's all about. That kind of reconciliation. Verses 8-10 through talk about that changed heart. Zacchaeus says to Jesus, Wow! Wait a minute. If I've done somebody wrong, I'm going to do it right. If I've taken something that's not mine, I'm going to return it. If I have defrauded somebody, I'm going to give them multiple times what I took. Now, that's a changed heart. You want to know if a person has accepted Jesus? See if they're a changed person. You can tell if their heart's changed. I am not suggesting that you and I go around qualifying people. That's not what I said. But you can tell. Attitudes change. Heart conditions change. And you can tell this man's heart has changed. Because now he's going to reverse his whole lifestyle. Instead of trying to accumulate for himself, he now wants to give. Isn't that a miracle? And God has worked that in his life. And then he says a fascinating thing. In verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. I think you can take that in a very general sense and say, Zacchaeus' home, there was nobody who was saved. Nobody who was thinking about God. And now, Zacchaeus, who lives in that house, now has come to faith. Salvation has come to that general house. I think you can also think theologically about that and say, well, the Hebrews taught that the head of the family who circumcised their kids was going to keep covenant and he was in the house and going to influence the people who lived in the house. I said this a couple of weeks ago at an infant baptism. When an infant baptism takes place, we're not talking about the faith of the child. We're talking about mom and dad's faith. And they are going to create an environment where they talk about Jesus and talk about the things of God, where they teach the scriptures and where they pray. Now, this house has a spiritual advocate. His name is Zacchaeus. Jesus has the big picture in mind. He said he's coming to faith. I love the way Jesus ends this. The quote says in verse 10, For the Son of Man, Jesus, has come, past tense, present, to seek and to save that which was lost. It's a blessing if you've come to the point in your life where you realize that when you were born into this world, you were spiritually lost. That is not what the world teaches. That is what our Bible teaches, the revealed Word of God. We were born into the world with no hope of salvation. Jesus says, to save that which was lost. That's where we start. And Jesus, as an act of mercy, has said, I have come to seek you and to save you. Something he's come to do for us. Has he found you? Have you been found? You know. If you have, you've been saved. Romans 10 9. If you confess with your lips Jesus is Lord and believe he's the Son of God and has been raised from the dead, you shall, not maybe, you shall be saved. Amen. I encourage you as we come to the table to keep your Bible open and to think back about some of what Jesus has just shown us and what he's just explained. Because folks, it's your story and mine. Not just Zacchaeus. Let's pray together. Father, it is absolutely amazing how your Holy Spirit can take your words written so long ago about an event that happened so long ago and make them come alive for us. Thank you for what you did out of mercy for Zacchaeus and for the blind man and for us. Father, as we come around this table... I pray that you would allow it to become spiritually alive for us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would use these elements in their natural state to minister to us and engraft us to you, that we might leave this place being much more intimately involved with you than when we came in. Please bless our time, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. What I'm about to read is a compilation of scripture, a lot of it from the Gospel of John, that has been put together many years ago and has been used in churches throughout the world in one form or another at the time of communion. I want you to listen to the words. Beloved in the Lord, hear what gracious words our Savior Christ saith unto all who truly turn unto him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Does that describe you? You just got an invitation, folks, to come. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Now, maybe, you shall find rest unto your souls. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. If you have any question about being thrown away, know that if you know Jesus, you will not be thrown away. You have already been incorporated into the family of God. The price is paid. You are his. He said, get out of the tree and come with me. I'm going to abide with you. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. What a beautiful promise. Our hymn is printed in your bulletin on the insert. Let's stand together and sing the first and second verses. It's on your insert. The sun of his sacrifice. Let me give you an invitation. It goes like this. You're invited to partake of these elements today. But when you do that, you need to have first examined yourself. It's one of the reasons we give a week's notice in our bulletin. It's one of the reasons we try to remind you electronically. If you haven't done that, if you haven't taken time to examine yourself, I encourage you to do that right now. And if, honestly, before the Lord, you can say, Lord, I don't want to be involved in sin. I don't want to offend you. Please forgive me. And I will yield to your Holy Spirit and let you take over. If you're willing to do that, then I encourage you to do it right now. If you're not prepared to do that, don't partake of these elements. Forget about the people sitting around you. Just don't take them. Because Scripture teaches that God becomes your adversary if you do that. You bring condemnation on yourself. Don't do that. This is a very special time in the life of the church. If you profess Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, if you're a member of His church, a Bible-believing church, you may come to our table because this table is the Lord's table. It is not uniquely our church or our denomination. But take seriously the warning that was given. Our elders are going to bring the elements to you. I encourage you to hold the elements. Just as in our passage today, Zacchaeus is part of the family of Abraham, part of the family of God. You and I are part of a family that's larger than just this. We're part of a worldwide church of God. And we have a place in that and we're going to take communion together. So hold the elements and we'll take them together. If you go back in your mind to the Last Supper, Monday Thursday we call it, Jesus was acting as a host. And at the very beginning of a meal, when they have Passover, the host takes bread and breaks that bread. And the host says to those who are about to take communion, this is my body, which is for you. So you take and you eat of it. And when you do that, do it in remembrance of me. after they had supped together, Jesus poured into a common cup wine that was symbolically to represent his shed blood. And what he was really saying was, there's not a sacrificial lamb whose blood we're now going to put on the doorpost. I am the sacrificial lamb. My blood washes away your sin." I have atoned for you. So as you take this and drink of it, do it in remembrance of what he has done for you personally.